Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Grams. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2137 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 5 of a 43-week series on the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Thank you, Sue. Thank you, Isaiah, and those that will be joining us online a little later. We do appreciate those who are willing to volunteer to minister to our children also. Last week's message that we recorded, recorded fine with video, but it didn't have any sound to it. So um, I'm not sure what happened. John and I are a little stumped at what might have happened. Other than I was up here opposed to John, is what probably what happened. Um, but I did record the message part of that on Monday and posted it on the church website. And the reason I did that is because we hope to go back and post all the messages and the series that we're, we've been producing, just a message part of that separately on the church website for those that just want to go through a series of, of messages. So I did record it. If you weren't here last week or you want to review it, um, I was in my easy chair. It wasn't quite the same as being here at the pulpit, but I was able to record it on Monday and um, post it online uh, a day or two later. So we do appreciate John and his abilities and glad he's back and had safety. And we pray that uh, Trudy will enjoy her another week in Florida with a lot warmer temperatures in here, but they are supposed to warm up this week. So thank you for everyone being here as we continue our series on the good news according to John the Apostle. And this message begins the miracles of Jesus Christ. So we're going to read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 25, and it's pages 1648 and 1649 in your pew Bibles. If you want to follow along, I will be reading out the New Living Translation again today, but it's really close to the New International Version, so you should be able to follow along. So follow along with me as I read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 25. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivity, so Jesus' mother told him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told his servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told his servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the masters of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the wine or water that was now wine, Not knowing where he had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said, and then when everyone had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miracle sign was this miracle sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days to be with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. 
Now, I'm going to stop in the reading of the scripture here just for a moment because there's a major break in dialogue here. And I'll explain that as we go throughout the message. But just so you know, this is a, a major dividing point in the message today. So I'll continue. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them out, all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle. He scattered the money changers' coins over the floor and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scripture. Passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, What are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he has been raised from the dead, his disciples remember he had said this, and they both believed the scriptures and what Jesus had said. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about the people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. There's really two different stories in our message today, but they're both tie to the sign that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, this chapter begins with Jesus attending a wedding in Canaan, and while there, he helped the groom's family avoid a very embarrassing and social shame because Jesus' simple act of kindness was much more than just an act of kindness. It was a sign. As we look at verses 1 and 2, it says the next day in verse 1 in New Living Translation, in the New um, International Version, it says the third day after these events, and it's talking about after the events of chapter 1, verses 45 through 51, where they traveled from Jerusalem up to Galilee to a town above the Galilee, Sea of Galilee, to Bethsaida, where the disciples were fishing, fishermen. And regardless of the time frame here, Jesus came to this region of his upbringing. Canaan was about four miles north of Nazareth, and while he was there, he attended a wedding of some close, either family members or very close friends. It was possibly even one of his half-brothers that was getting married here. And this would explain why his mother was so invested in proactive role in this feast. Now, when wedding in those days were quite different than what we have in the West, the parents arranged the marriage in the Near East, and an actual contract was created and written and signed. Vows were spoken in the synagogue, and tokens were exchanged. Then the man and the woman actually returned to their respective homes. They didn't live together during this engagement period, although they were legally considered married. But this engagement period lasted anywhere from two months up to a year. And at the end of that waiting period, the groom would take to the streets, usually at night with his friends. He would light a torch, and he would show have this parade through the streets, waving banners and singing, I'm getting married in the morning, 
Ding dong, the bells are going to chime. Well, maybe it wasn't that song, but it was a Jewish hymn of praise for his wedding. And they made a real spectacle of it. As they traveled to the wife's home, and they had this ceremony of speeches of goodwills and blessings that were pronounced over the couple. And then the groom took her, his bride back to his house, where the families and friends feasted for up to a week. Can you imagine a wedding celebration, a celebration lasting an entire week? The groom family was expected to cover all the costs of the food and beverage during that week. And as we look on to verses 3 and 4, the family, in this case, hadn't planned quite well enough. Either that or the guests drank more than they expected. After all, Jesus brought five of his disciples with him that were disciples at that point. And it was not uncommon and still not uncommon in the Middle East and some of the African nations. When you have a celebration, family members from way out just all of a sudden show up unannounced and attend that celebration. So for whatever reason, the family had run out of wine or was close to it. This was a significant breach of etiquette in the families that, on that day. To this day, even in the Middle East and in, in some of the African nations, hospitality is considered a sacred duty. And in some cases, if you don't provide that hospitality, you can even have legal action taken against you. It might seem strange for us, but that's the culture of the day and culture even today in some countries. Nevertheless, something had to be done. Otherwise, this family would be scorned and shamed. So Mary turned to her, her oldest son for his help. But can you imagine raising Jesus Christ during his childhood up to when he became 30, when he started his public ministry? Just think, I can imagine some of the miracles he might have performed during that time period. Now, the scripture doesn't record any, but how did his mother know that Jesus could do something in this case if he had not at least shown some of his power within their own home. So if we get back to verse 4, we see three words or phrases that need explanation, mainly because the language and the culture of the, of the foreign, of that country or culture, could lead to being misinterpreted. Now Jesus said, dear woman, or in the New International Version it says woman. Now I would advise all men to avoid using that phrase when they're addressing a female. We don't go up to say, woman, cook me some dinner. It just doesn't go over. It doesn't go well in our English translation. However, the culture of first century Galilee, it was actually a very polite term that was used. It would be more like, yes, ma'am, or no, ma'am, or ma'am, would you help me out with this? So it doesn't come off quite as harsh as what it would in our English language. So Christ said, dear woman, that's not our problem. And that seems sort of strange in my mind. But the Greek behind this phrase is based on a Semitic expression. In the NIV, it's translated, woman, why do you involve me? Christ wanted to know what her intentions were for involving him in this issue that had come up. He says, my time has not yet come. And when Jesus references his time or his hour, it's referenced over eight times in the Gospel of John. And these are expressions always in reference to the time of his glorification, when Christ would be glorified through what he did. Now, Mary, before the conception of Jesus Christ, when the angel announced that she would become pregnant, 
She knew she was carrying that Messiah. And for years, she and Joseph had endured ridicule and scorn and misunderstanding for apparently conceiving Jesus during their engagement period, which was a taboo. For decades, she waited patiently to share that wonderful secret with the world. She likely saw this present situation as that opportunity for her, a perfect opportunity for Jesus to burst onto the political scene, stir the people into action, and then begin to claim that throne of David, which it was rightly his. Mary knew that, but the, genuine, gen, the populace didn't know that. So Jesus' response clarified their, her misconceptions in three different ways. First, the Messiah's glory would come, but at the expense of his death, not as a result of a dazzling show of power. Second, the Messiah's glory would come from God and not from people. And thirdly, the Messiah's glory would take place in the Father's timetable, not on anyone else's timetable. Mary may not have understood the full significance of her son's correction at that time, but she got the message. She knew that he knows his destiny and that he was in charge. As we move on to verses 6 through 10, the fact that Jesus did act and that it was a supernatural means in which he acted tells us that he didn't really object to his mother's request, because, but having addressed her, maybe her misguided motivations, he delighted to help that host family to provide what was needed. He instructed the servants to fill six stone jars which held 20 to 30 gallons each. And that would be over 150 gallons of wine. Now, I'm not a drinker, but that seems like an awful lot of wine to me. It'd be 2,400 one-cup servings of wine available to them instantly at this point. Now, to understand the background context, because we miss, if we don't fully understand the cultural context of the scripture, we miss some of the nuances of it. By this time in history, turning water into wine was sort of a cliche statement. It was a sleight of hand or a parlor trick. It'd be similar to pulling a rabbit out of a top hat at a magic show. Conjurers in the pagan temples used special pitchers which had two chambers and they could switch off those chambers and they at will could pour water or they could pour wine. And this was the cultural nuances that Jesus performed this miracle with. I see Jesus revealing a little bit of his humor, choosing to solve the family's problem by actually doing what only others could simulate. But it left no room for trickery. While Jesus stood back and maybe even reclined at the table to eat part of the meal, he observed what was going on. The servants handled the jars, they filled them with water, they dipped the water out, they took it to the master of ceremonies and gave it to him. And when the master of ceremonies took it, at some point during that transition, it turned to wine. The miraculous transformation occurred somewhere in that process. But we want to note something, that the provisions was not only abundant, 150 gallons of wine, the quality of the wine was excellent. And take note of the Lord's motivation as well. This is a simple act of kindness that Jesus Christ did for the sake of his family or friends that would have been embarrassed by this fupa of not having enough wine to last to the end of the celebration. 
but he didn't make a sideshow spectacle of it. It appears that the only people that knew about this miracle that happened were the servants and his disciples. Even the head waiter, the one who took the wine to the master's ceremonies, didn't know what had happened. Now, in verses 11 and 12, John concludes this essay with a comment that the transition is in the next scene. And it calls for this miracle as the first of many signs that Jesus performed, the supernatural display of his power attested to his identity as God. Moreover, the symbolism of it, of what had happened, was to symbolizing our transformation from being lost to being saved, was the transformation of that water, plain old water, into an excellent wine. And while the time for Jesus' glory, it says, had not yet come, the disciples were witness of this nonetheless, and by faith it strengthened as a result of this. And then afterwards, and this is why I think it probably was a family member, Jesus and his disciples, five of them at this point, enjoyed a time of family reunion in Capernaum, roughly 18 miles away in north, northeast of Cana. Because Mary's husband, Joseph, is not mentioned in this particular chapter, or any of the Gospels after his 12th year, when he was, appeared at the temple, and that was in Luke chapter 2, most interpreters concluded that Joseph probably died somewhere between Jesus' 12th year and his 30th year. And that Mary was probably living either with Jesus during that time or with one of his half-brothers. But then we have a, declare, a, a clear, distinct break in our narrative here. It's two distinct stories that John wants to portray. And as we move into this next section on Jesus clearing the temple, let me set the stage. Have you ever read a book or watched a movie and you expect it to be in chronological order, right? As you're reading the story or watching this movie, it, it follows through in chronological orders. But have you ever read a book or watched a movie where they keep bouncing back and forth in time? And it gets somewhat confusing. You know, 24 years earlier or 25 years later, before this happened. And this is what we see in this second chapter of John. Several of the books of the Bible were actually written in this format. It was a type of particular genre for literature of the day where you would organize the material around specific events or specific information opposed to a chronological order. So an unknown period of time was between that wedding and Jesus clearing the temple. We don't know how long, for sure. But unlike Luke, whose chronicle does follow that natural progression day after day or week after week. It was chronological and event-driven. John's narrative is much more philosophical and is driven by a central theological purpose to prove that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. That was his purpose of his writing of the gospel. Therefore, some episodes appear way out of chronological order, and they're organized by topic rather than time and place. It's like arranging picture albums. Like I have two of our picture albums today, and say we arrange one with all birthdays in it and one with all vacations in it. And if we look through those, we would not get a clear chronological order of, of our lives. And that's what John is doing in this particular passage, is he's not arranging it in chronological order, but of significance that he's wanting to relay 
in his gospel. Because the remainder of John chapter 2 is such of an example as this. The other gospel accounts Jesus, of Jesus clearing the temple occur after his triumphal entry. During that Passion Week, then he went into the temple and cleared them out. And we see this in Matthew chapter 21 toward the end of Matthew's book. In Mark chapter 11 toward the end of Mark's book. Luke chapter 19 toward the end of his book. So the clearing of the temple either occurred twice, in once recorded by John and once recorded by the other three gospel writers, or John's account of that Palm Sunday and Passion Week, he took that section and inserted it here for his literary purposes. And that's what I have come to the conclusion is probably what happened. Because John does record Palm Sunday and the Passion Week later in his gospel, but he doesn't mention his clearing of the temple because he wanted to emphasize that at the beginning of Christ's ministry. In fact, John records Jesus going into the temple and speaking but at that time, a voice of God was heard by those that were in the temple. It was a little different scenario that John was emphasizing there. So as you study scripture, be aware that it does not always follow a chronological order. And we know that John wrote the book of Revelation. He actually wrote it before he wrote the gospel of John. And he does the same thing in the book of Revelation. There's three primary cycles in the book of Revelation. And if you read it through chronologically, you'll be very confused compared to what John's intent was. He has three different cycles of information, all repeating that same information, but in a different format, using different symbolisms in Revelation. And this is one storyline where the symbolism fits, much closer to that of the Passion Week. In John's Gospel, the, the Feast of Passover is the signpost of Jesus' journey through his life. It plays a crucial role in the narrative. And the reason it appears this way is that John the baptizer, just in the previous chap chapter, said, let the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, in chapter 1, verses 29 and 36. And John doesn't use that Lamb of God term again in his gospel, but he uses symbolisms to identify Jesus as that true sacrificial Lamb, the ultimate fulfillment of that Passover festival. So the beginning of his gospel, he wants to show a sign. He performed a miracle of turning water into wine, and he wanted to make it clear that this was that Passover lamb. Because the Passover goes back to a time in Egypt when Moses was given instruction to prepare a lamb in a certain way and to honor the Lord's presence by spreading blood on the lentil, which is the top post, and on the doorpost coming down of every Israelite house. So when the death angel moved through Egypt and took the life of every firstborn male in every household in the entire land except those that had the blood over the door in the, in the Israelites' doors. So when the death angel moved, that sacrificial lamb that took away the death from the Israelites' homes is being imaged here. By the first century, the festival has really became really different. It hardly resembled that solemn event of Israel's exodus from bondage in Egypt. The priesthood was wholly corrupt at this point. The priest's greed had polluted the temple. 
The outer courts of the temple complex was a combination of a flea market and the stock market combined. Because this so-called Annas' Bazaar was named after Annas, the godfather figure who was once the high priest, but the Roman officials deposed him, but he still acted and manipulated the puppet priests that he put in place. Most of them were his own sons. And he continued to run this well-established con game on a grand scale. To put it bluntly, Annas was corrupt to the core. And throughout the year, but especially at Passover, all Jewish males were expected to visit the temple. They were to pay the tax that was required by the law of Moses and to sacrifice an animal. And on Passover, that sacrificial lamb was always to be without blemish and defect. Moreover, the tax had to be paid in shekels. You say, why the currency exchange? Because no payment could be made in a foreign currency that bore the images of the, the Roman dictators at the time because that was forbidden under the law of Moses. So Annas and his cronies set up their stations in the temple courts to exchange foreign currency for shekels at an exorbitant fee. Then he supplied sacrificial animals, either for those that weren't able to bring their own animals to be sacrificed, he would sell them at an exorbitant price, or if you did bring an animal, they had these inspection stations set up, and they would inspect the animal. Is this animal without defect and blemish? And they would say, no, this one won't do, but I'll trade you this other animal, and then they charged additional fees on top of that. And then that animal that they took in on trade would become somebody else's premium animal. So they were just making money hand over fist, as we would say in today's vernacular. What a racket. During the Passover celebration, the population of Jerusalem would swell by over 250,000 men alone. And Josephus, that Jewish historian from the first and second century, estimated that the population total would swell by about 3 million people when you included the entire family. The money-making potential for the priesthood was phenomenal. It was staggering. In the set, and this is the setting that Jesus had seen each year as he and his family came to the temple to present sacrifices at Passover and observe those sacrifices and glorify God. But this year, like the others, it was not found to be a place of worship, but a shameless sham, a shrine of greed and a sanctuary of thieves. But this year, at least the recording of this event, whether it happened after the, the wedding in Canaan or during Passion Week, after the Palm Sunday, it was going to be different. Especially because this was, if it happened at the climax of Jesus' ministry, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, was to be sacrificed that week as the one final sacrifice. Now, Jesus is, if we move on to verse 15 through 17, Jesus' disciples had to stand in awe, in stunned silence with their mouth agape. We, didn't, we aren't familiar with this Jesus that's ran, coming into the temple and he's tossing furniture as if they were toothpicks and slinging coins across the temple courtyard. 
And then he would grab the whip. He tied ropes and grabbed the whip and drove out those who were offering sacrifices. Drove them out of the temple. He drove the animals back to those who were trying to, to trade and sell them. What was different here is that those unclean owners of animals did not understand the true temple's owner's voice, which was Jesus Christ, as he echoed through the courts, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And then the disciples remembered, John inserted this, Psalm chapter 69, verse 9, passions for God's house will consume me. And this is Jesus Christ uttering these words as John wrote them down. And once that commotion had died down after he drove them out of the temple courtyard, the inevitable confrontation came. Jesus was not surprised by this. He knew that it would happen and where it would lead him. The religious leaders knew the scriptures also. But their concern was for authority. Just like they asked John to baptize her, by what authority do you baptize who gave you this authority when he was in the Judean wilderness? They demanded now of Christ, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. Now, John uses the word sign here as the same word he uses in verse 11, because Jesus was not opposed to offering a miracle as a seal of authentication under the right circumstances. However, the burden of proof was not on Jesus Christ that day. He had not violated any law. His actions were not blatantly immoral. His rightness of actions were the authority enough. So instead, Jesus gave them a veiled response, as Jesus often did during his ministry. He said, all right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Now, this was apparent to those priests to even think or mention this. Only a perceptive hearer, though, would comprehend what Jesus was saying. And none of the priests that were there that day understood it. They weren't qualified to understand. And even his disciples, it says, did not understand that true meaning until after the resurrection. So in verses 20 through 22, Jesus, just as expected, the religious authorities of the day took his challenge quite literally. But unfortunately, they completely missed Jesus' point. The temple was constructed to be a dwelling place of God. Not that God needs a structure. He's omnipresent. He can, he's everywhere simultaneously. He hasn't, doesn't need to dwell in a man-made structure. He ordered the temple to be constructed as a house to house his unique manifestation of his presence, that supernatural light, which is referred to as the Shekinah glory. In the Old Testament, that light appeared in the burning bush of, that Moses saw on Mount Sinai before he led the nation of Israel out of Egypt. It also appeared on that mount, same mountain that Moses saw that burning bush was Mount Sinai. He saw that same mountain when Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments, and there was a flame of fire at the top of that mountain. That's that same Shekinah glory. It was the same pillar of fire that led the children throughout the wilderness on their way to the Holy Land. And as the tabernacle was constructed and then later the temple, the Shekinah glory 
hovered over the Ark of the Covenant and behind that thick veil which hid that most holy place. But the Lord did that, his manifestation for their benefit, not for his own. It was to affirm his presence that he was that one and only God. Unfortunately, because the people of Israel had repeated and persistent failure, that failure was to worship him exclusively. They also became rebellious and immoral. The Shekinah glory long ago had departed the nation of Israel. While God's love for the nation of Israel never faded, and he continued to guide that nation even after the exile, the temple structure that was in Jerusalem was not the dwelling place of God for centuries. When Jesus issued this challenge to the religious leaders, it's as though he was pointing to his own chest and saying, I am the authentic dwelling place of God. Anyways, we conclude with verses 23 through 25. Jesus concludes this story on a positive note. And while the religious leaders had remained defiant and rejected the high priest, which was Jesus Christ, many others did believe in him and came to him. And John adds that they believe by observing those signs, that word sign that, Christ, that John wrote referring to the miracles of Christ. Now, what's the application here? On your other side of your bulletin, I forgot to mention, I do have on one side the horizontal sign. We have the seven signs of God. We just covered the first one today, which was chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, where he turned water into wine. The sign was power over the shame that would have resulted on the family because they ran out of wine. And the significance is that Jesus is the source of life. And we're going to cover the other six signs as we go throughout the Gospel of John. But if you'll flip that over now, the application for today is keeping your temple clean. John concludes the story on a positive note. And John tells the story of Jesus cleansing the temple in Jerusalem to establish three primary truths. The first truth is that God owns the temple. The priests do not own it. He called priests to be stewards of the temple and to help people approach as he had commanded. The second is that God's word is the only authority recognized in the temple. The word became flesh and dwell among us. And that's what it's referring to here. The high priest was not the authority there or any other designated position. Therefore, anyone acting contrary to that word, his word, the word that became flesh, has no authority. And thirdly, God's son came to claim ownership of the temple, and the religious authorities rejected him. This point is repeated often during John's narrative and ultimately leads to a final rejection of Christ as the Messiah. This incident illustrates a practical truth for believers. God's sacred temple is sacred ground. It's a dedicated place of meeting between the Lord and his people. In the Old Testament, the Lord used a physical structure for this purpose. The first tabernacle, which the Hebrews called the Ten of Meeting, and then the permanent building, which was the temple in Jerusalem, both Solomon's temple and then the second century temple that was built by the Romans. The Lord was particular about reserving everything in the temple for worship. Now, he took common, 
items like pitchers and bowls. But when they were set apart in the temple, they became holy. We're common. We're like every other person on the earth. But when we're set apart, we become holy. The scripture tells us, be ye holy for I am holy, says God. The Lord reserves that which he sets apart to be holy. Once Jesus completed his work of atonement for the sins of the world, there was no longer a need for that temple. Once Jesus completed his work, there was no longer need for that place of holy of holies because the temple had changed. The temple, as we're told, is now in the believers, in you and I, in us as a congregation here at Putnam and every congregation throughout the world, is that representation of that temple of Jesus Christ that he went and cleared out on that day. So the question for today is, what do you think the Lord wants to drive out of your temple? And while the Lord wants his temple to be clean, the task is not ours to complete. It's impossible for us to clear ourselves out. Note that when Jesus drove out those that were set up shop in the courtyard, it was the only person who had authority to do that, which was Jesus Christ. The priest didn't clear it out. Only God in human flesh was qualified to confront and remove that impurity as only he can. So our role as temples of God now, because each of our bodies as believers, as citizens of God's kingdom, are temples of a holy God. And only the only righteous one can clear our temples. So I, at the bottom of the page there, I put a simple prayer down. When you find your temple becoming polluted with things of the world, this is just a prayer that you could pray. Turning your temple over to God saying, clear me out because I don't have the ability to do it myself. The role is to submit to this cleansing process, first by refusing to tolerate the presence of corruption, and then by asking God to remove that corruption through Jesus Christ. And that's the message. Both stories in our passage today, changing water into wine, is that of changing our lives into something pure and sweet and excellent. Driving out the money changers and the people who were trading sacrifices is a picture of Jesus Christ cleansing our lives as we are now temples of a holy God. Now next week, we're going to look at, and our passage contains the most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16. But what our story is going to combine is that brainstorming of the new birth between Nicodemus and Jesus Christ as he tries to explain to this knowledgeable Jewish rabbi, this teacher, what it means to be born again. 
And that'll be our passage for next week as we brainstorm the new birth. Now, I encourage you to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 21 for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this time where we can learn about the showing of your glory through these signs. First, the water changed to wine, and then by you driving through Jesus Christ, driving the corruption from the temple because the perfect Lamb of God had now arrived, one who would sacrifice for the sins of the entire world, and we can put our trust in him. Allow us to clear our temples out through Jesus Christ, Father. Be with us this week. May our lives glorify your name in all things. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward. Enjoy your journey and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's word.